Thanks, Joe. Okay. <clears throat> yeah, we actually do our baptisms in a Rubbermaid cattle trough out on the grass. So I actually have a photo of one here later in my, in my message, so you'll get to actually see it. So if you're wondering what it looks like, you'll get to see it. So uh, I'm going to open up in a word of prayer here. Uh, just because it's, it's, this has been a, a little bit of a challenging message for me this week, so I just need the Lord's help here. So Lord, we just want to bow before you here this morning. Thank you, Lord, that you give us an opportunity to gather. Despite all that's going on in the world, we can still gather together here. Uh, Lord, we can open your word. We can be encouraged through it. We can have that hope that Gary talked about and that we sang about and we can look forward to your return. And Lord, I pray that your message here from your word will go forth, that you'll somehow use these thoughts that you've put together in my heart and on these pages up here that you'll speak forth through them, especially your word with the power of the spirit. May it go out and be the great teacher to apply it. May he do that in our hearts and minds, Lord. And may we have open ears. As your word so often tells us, he who hasn't hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Lord, that, that means we need to open our ears. We need to have an attitude of accepting and receiving your word. And I pray that we'll do that today. I pray you'll use me now to speak what you want me to speak and that your word will go forth in the power of the Spirit. May you cleanse us of sin and let us walk righteously before you. Guide us as we walk out of here later today as people that are spurred on by your word with zeal and excitement for what lays ahead. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So I was thinking as I was reading through things and as we've faced various situations over the last several months, and as I, this opportunity to speak grew near, I, I was thinking how each of us have stories. Each of our lives are individual stories. And if you think about it, our stories are made up of small chapters little stories that effectively weave together to create a big picture story of who we are today and what the Lord has done to shape us. Uh, and there'd be questions, you know, that, that I would ask that I, because I don't know all your stories, but I could ask you and find out things like, who were your parents? Where did you grow up? What your childhood was, childhood was like? What your favorite memories are from your past? Uh, or even right now, memories that you're making this very day. Uh, perhaps when you met your spouse, if you're married. Uh, when you came to know the Lord, what, was, what significant happened there and how the Lord orchestrated that. Uh, perhaps what times of testing or trial you faced. Uh, times of tears, times of joy, times of disappointment, times of success. These are things that we all have in our lives, and we could sit down and we can share, and we can share about the work of the Lord in his hand to move us and shape us. Uh, for me, I grew up in Kansas City, the youngest of three boys. Uh, and this is, you know, you look at these, and photos are cool because they help us sort of remember some of our past stories. Uh, and they draw them back into our minds, and it floods back in. And now I don't remember a whole lot up there in the upper left, but nonetheless, in 1974, that was me. Uh, then, of course, here I am in my little purple Izod shirt in elementary school for my, for my photo there. And then I like this one here because it takes me back to a place and a time where I'm in Texas there with a fairly large bass. And I got my Grand Canyon 1983 shirt on. And, 
And it just, it was a, that's a great place. And even my family, we still go to that place, but it's, it's definitely a lot different than it was then. Then you move on, and I met my wife when I was a senior in high school, um, and that, that it was a great event, and we, we dated for a number of years, and I ended up getting my degree in the University of Kansas, and I still work, you know, as an electrical engineer. That's part of, part of the way the Lord shaped me and gave me that ability. And then over here, we get to a, a pinnacle climax where, I, where my wife and I, Chris, we, we got married, and so I got some photos here of our reception, and then I, here we are in the lower right, driving away in a little Mustang convertible, people clapping and blowing bubbles, and we lived happily ever after. <laughs> and, the, the, and, and I'm just going to stop the story there, just for, just for a while. We'll come back to that in a second. But these are good memories, memories of, of past times and things that began all the way back in 74. And it's a story of, of, of Joel Butler that's a little sliver in God's big story. And each of you has a story just as neat and all kinds of cool things the Lord's done and memories and ups and downs. I'm sure there's valleys of walking through the valley of the shadow of death, all kinds of different high and lows. But they're little slivers in God's big story. And that's what I wanted to talk about today. And it's hard for me to, as I thought about this, how do you grapple with trying to bring God's huge story into like a 30-minute or 40-minute sort of message. It's, it's tricky. But I want you to bear with me here as I'm going to rewind thousands of years ago, millenniums past, and I'm going to try to walk us through some of this story because I think it has great import. If we're going to know where things are heading in the future, we've got to know where things have come from in the past. Uh, and so it's critical. So I'm going to rewind. I'm going to move somewhat quickly, but try to stick with me. Now, in the beginning, we know that God created the heavens and the earth. It says that in Genesis 1, 1, the very first sentence. And Job tells us that when God laid the foundation of the earth, he says, the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Now, you could ask the question, who are these morning stars? Who are the sons of God that shouted for joy in this passage? Well, if we were to do a lengthy study of Job, you could find out relatively quickly that the morning stars and the sons of God are referring to the angelic hosts. So the picture here is as the foundation of the, of the earth is being laid and the world is being laid, you have the angelic host, all of them shouting for joy. But there was a problem in that sometime after this period, one of the key stars fell. I can't claim to know the timing of all this. All I know is that one of the key stars fell because it says in Isaiah 14, 12, how you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And in Revelation 12, 4, we see a picture of this dragon that when he fell, he swept away a third. It says his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And then if you were to dive back into the Genesis account as God's building and shaping the earth, you'll see him make 
creatures and, and he'll deal with the water and then make dry land and then the, the animals and the birds and the fish and the, and the plants and, and all these awesome things and it was good and it was good and it was a, a good thing. All these awesome things that he made as he, was in, as he created. Uh, and then he did something very interesting as these angelic onlookers watched and witnessed what he was forming. He then created man in his own image, uh, which was a unique thing. And I can only imagine what, as they watched what he did next, as they watched in, in great amazement, as he's made this earth, he's now made all these creatures, he's then made the man and then the woman, and then he does something that I think was probably a little bit of a shock to him. They're thinking it's his, he's made it, it's his to rule, it is his, the Lord's, to name. But notice what he does here, as that he gives rule to man. And then he begins bringing animals to man to name. He gives man the authority to name. He gives man the authority to rule. I'm sure they were scratching their head, what's going on here? Why would you take this somewhat lower creation relative to the angels and give them the rule and authority. Wouldn't one of, one of us or God himself be the rightful one to have this authority? But nonetheless, this is what he did. Now the dragon, of course, the serpent of old, was at work by this point, up to his nature of lies and deception. He deceived the woman, and subsequently the man followed after his wife and disobeying this, the one single stipulation. You can eat of any tree in the garden, even the, the tree of life you could eat from. But one tree you can't eat from is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And unfortunately, they fell victim to this deception and acted in sin. Thus, mankind tumbled into captivity to sin. We found ourselves under the tyranny of the serpent and under sin and under the ultimate reign of death. Because Paul said in Romans, you got to hear this, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? And in Hebrews 2.14, speaking of the devil, it is he who had the power of death. Know this past tense because what Christ has done. But he had the power of death, that is the devil. And 2.15 of Hebrews, a picture of man, he says, who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. That's the result of the fall in the garden. We were under the power of death. We were subject to slavery. Uh, and that is the situation. And it was at that very moment in time, back in the garden, when a, when a profound mystery or prophetic mystery was laid before man. It was laid before the angelic onlookers. And it was laid before the serpent. And that was this, that one would come from the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. <clears throat> I believe the angelic host's ears perked up. The serpent had to pay attention to this. And Adam himself, I know, paid attention because his very first action after this happened, you know what it was? He decided to name his wife a little different name than just woman. He named, him, named her Eve, meaning mother of the living. 
now knowing that she would produce offspring and that through her seed would come a, a, a reclamation of what had been lost, a situation that would bring life back to mankind. But the wages of their sin meant death and separation from the God they once walked openly with. And so thus their descendants, mankind, tumbled deep into wickedness and evil as the evil one's fallen forces worked and were moved to infiltrate and corrupt the line of man, it came to a point that only one man was found righteous on the whole planet. Only one. And thus the Lord did something massive. Something that Peter says to the New Testament church, you better not forget what he did in Genesis 6 and 7. Because there will be people that will come in the end. There will be mockers that will say, what is the sign of his coming? And they forget what he did back here in this story. That he chose to flood the earth with water, destroying all of the wickedness. And the spiritual forces watched on. And they got to see another great demonstration as he did this. He showed them, I have the ability to save. In the midst of judgment, I can bring through that through and save the ones I want. And so the one righteous man, Noah, and his family were put on this ark, and they were saved. And he put a covenantal sign as they came out of the ark after the flood subsided. He put a sign in the sky to promise to Noah, to, to the animals, and to us this very day that he will never flood the earth again. It's a sign that we saw last week when we were on a vacation up in Minnesota. It's a sign that the evil one will want to malign. But make no mistake, it's God's bow. It has a meaning, and it reminds us of this past story, that he promises to be faithful to never flood the earth again. Now, it was shortly after this period that God revealed more of his plan as these angelic hosts watched on. He appeared to a man, Abraham, and he promised to bless him. He said, I will give you a specific land. I will make nations come forth from you. And then he said, and through your seed, all the descendants of the earth will be blessed. Now the line of the head crusher was even more clear. And the serpent worked to destroy this line to no avail. Thus, the man had descendants. And one in particular, Isaac, was the one of promise. And then he had Jacob. And we know the Lord changed his name to Israel, the chosen name that God had for his chosen family and his chosen nation. And I'm telling you that when God makes promises like this to people, he does not intend to break his promises. If you were to look in Jeremiah, you will see the seriousness of God's promises when he says, Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. Here's what he says. If this fixed order departs from me, that's the sun and the moon and the stars, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. He meant business, and he still does to this day. He's a God of his promises. Now, the number of this family grew. 
from the 12 sons of Jacob grew into many, many, probably a little over a million as they lived in Egypt for hundreds of years. And they found themselves subjugated to forced labor. Therein, God, as you know, stretched out his powerful arm and he brought them out of the house of Egypt under, from under the yoke of slavery. And as they walked the road, as he led them to the promised land, he gave them laws and ordinances, many of which, if you were to read them on our public streets today, they'd say, you believe this, God? I do. Because his law shone a problem. It shone a light into the heart of man. The man can't keep and he can't make his way to God by doing, by just walking with rules. That we needed another deliverer. Uh, and so he gave them these stipulations. But he eventually, as you know, after 40 years, he leads them into the land. He gave them kings. And he told them of a future king that would come. One that would be from the line of Judah. One from the, son, the line of David. One that would be a son to the Lord. One that would have a kingdom forever, that his throne would be established forever. One that would set the captives free, that is man's corruption to slay and captivity to sin and death and the devil's reign of terror. One that he says specifically will rule the nations with a rod of iron. And the awesome thing about God's promises and prophecies like that is that as they weave through the history of man, they can span generations to where we have to look and see awesome partial sort of fulfillments with Solomon, but clearly a much bigger view as the writer of Hebrews points towards Christ was, is the ultimate fulfillment of the one star that would arise from Jacob. And then at the appointed time, when the great prophetic mystery that I told you began back in the garden was due to begin its fulfillment, an amazing thing happened. As the angelic forces watched what God did here on this chapter of the story, it's, it's un, un, unbelievable what they would have seen. As they watched the Son of God, the one who was there prior to even their formation, the one that was there at the foundation of the earth, the one that's been a thread throughout all of this story, the Son of God, followed the will of the Father, came to the earth, humbled himself, taking on flesh and becoming a man. They had to be in amazement, saying, he would do this for that creation. To see the grace of the Lord unfold like this to them, uh, is quite amazing. Now we know that the serpent was, was there and ready as he, as he knew by this point that it would be from the line of Judah. It would be from the line of David. He would come from the seed of the woman. And he was there as Revelation paints a picture. He's there as, the, as in Revelation the woman gives birth to the son. He, he's there to try to deceive, to try to trick, to try to capture that one. But he failed because the king overcame, because he remained faithful to the words of his father. And he followed every line to a T of what the Lord God the Father demanded. He never succumbed to the sin that so easily had entangled all mankind before him. And as the serpent looked on, he could do nothing to stop Israel's king, the one who would eventually crush his head, the one who would redeem mankind from the serpent's rule, 
Because remember, God had always laid provision in his law for those that had fallen and, and had been sold into slavery. He always made provision that they could be redeemed by a kinsman redeemer. Why those provisions and stipulations in the law? Because Jesus fulfilled them to a T. He was our kinsman redeemer. Thus the spiritual forces watched as God came to help the enslaved creation of man. And through his death and resurrection, he proved victorious over the serpent and over sin and over death that hangs over, as a veil over the nations. And as those that, and those that receive him, even to this day, those that receive him in belief, he opens the door for them to now once again walk in communion with the Father like they did before. And the rule and authority that man had compromised in the garden was now fully back in the hands of a man, a king who overcame. The one who, after his resurrection, came and said, now all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's a meaningful statement. It's mine, he says, that authority, that rule. But then something interesting happened. Something that was sort of sad for one, but good for another. And that is God's chosen people of Israel, that house, they rejected their king. They rejected their redeemer. And they stumbled over the stumbling block. And then that opened the door for the Gentiles. And then we find Paul's writing to the Gentiles that he says, at this point he said, I was sent to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is an incredible chapter that we live in today. The church age one where the church is demonstrating right now to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, the angelic witnesses, to see God's grace, God's mercy, the unfathomable riches of his grace poured out year in, year out. Thousands of years now, it's gone on since Paul penned these words. The previous plan that had been hidden in the garden was now brought to light. And through his institution of the church, these rulers in the heavenly places still watch seeing this grace unfold day after day. Now, you could stop there, and we, we will for now. And many do. And in so doing, when you stop the story there, you miss the rest of the story. You miss the king's future. You miss man's future. You miss the nation of Israel's future. You miss the serpent's future. You miss the second and the third great climaxes in God's grand story. You'd say, well, why would you stop there? Why would you stop and not go on? Well, I'll give you two reasons. I think there's probably a lot, but I'll give you two. One, I think modern thinking begins to in, has begun to infiltrate us even within the church. And we can fall into a trap. I'll talk about that in a second. Number two, we can just flat out fall asleep. God warns in every gospel, all the synoptics, don't fall asleep. Implication, you can. We'll talk about that in a second too. Consider the first idea that I brought up. 
modern thinking influences, influences us in a way that we can fall into a trap. We live in a day wherein the predominant thought says there are no meta-narratives. That story I just read to you, it's garbage. There is no big picture to this world. All these things, that all the, the modern thinking that happened back, the modernist thinking that we're slowly gaining knowledge and building a picture of what God has made, that's not true because there is no meta-narrative. And they say there's, all knowledge is only partial. No one has absolute truth and there can be no absolute truth. And because there is no overarching story, you can have whatever you want as your rules you can have whatever you want as your rules, and you over there, you, you, you can have whatever you want for your rules, because there are no rules to the game. If there's no big story, do whatever. There's, we can make room for everybody. All gather around and make room for everybody. And it's gotten to a point that on our streets, it's gotten pretty heated if you were to read some of, that, some of the aspects of this big picture story. Uh, and you would say to me, well, Joel, that's just, you know, when I hear these and I see this quote by Jean-Francois Lyotard from France, he says, I define postmodern as incredulity towards meta-narratives. You'd say, well, yeah, but that's just flat wrong and the church doesn't fall into this trap. But think of it this way. If the details of this meta-narrative were vitally important and there is an overarching reality regardless of man's thoughts and opinions. And if there is a prophetic future for the church and for Israel, what would be the impact of that? I would tend to think you would probably want to study the story. If you were reading a novel, you'd say, well, I just, I'm not going to stop at the, the fourth chapter from the end. I better read those final four chapters. You might want to answer questions like, what happened in Genesis 6? Who were the Nephilim? What's the significance of the Tower of Babel? Who is Michael the archangel? Who is the great serpent of old? When will the head crusher finally crush the head of the serpent? What's the meaning of Daniel's 70 weeks? And what's the meaning of his abomination of desolation that Jesus brings back up on Olivet Discourse? Why does Ezekiel spend four cha huge chapters measuring a temple that's huge. If you, if you read it and map it out, if you take the time to map it out, it's huge, and it's never been built. What does that mean? You might want to ask, what is the meaning of the four horses and the seven bulls and the seven trumpets? What is the significance of the gift of tongues and prophecy? What will be the sign of this? These are big questions. Big questions. I'm not going to claim that I know the answers to every one of them, but I'm going to try to read the story so I can at least know what he has to say about them so I can be ready to give an account and be watchful for what will happen. But instead of doing that, what we sometimes do is we say things like this. And this is the trap. I can't know for sure. It's too complicated. There are many opinions and no absolutes for me to hold on to. I, I just, there's nothing there. It sounds sort of postmodern-like. We could say, that's the God of the Old Testament. It's not relevant anymore. I've had people in the church, brothers and sisters that I dearly love, look at me and say, Joel, I've given up on prophecy completely. I just, I don't have, I don't want to have anything to do with it. 
I remember when, my, when we studied the book of Revelation, I was telling guys, why would you go into that book? I don't want to study that. It causes too many divisions, he says. It's the one book of the Bible that says, blessed is he who reads the words of this prophecy and heeds what's written in it. And keep in mind that Stephen, Peter, Paul, John, Jesus, they didn't just throw all that away and just whittle it down. Get rid of all that. Just camp out right here in this real simple statement. And that's all we, they didn't do that. In fact, on the road to Emmaus, when Jesus, after his resurrection, walking with two of his disciples, you remember what he said and what he did? He said, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And then get this, then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Notice that Jesus explained his story by using the whole story. By using all of God's word, he brought it to bear and said, do you see it? Do you see me there? Do you see me back with Moses? Do you see me walking here with the nation of Israel and the star from Jacob? That's me. Do you see what the prophets said? That's me. Now, this moves us to say, we should too should have a big picture view. We should look to the final chapters. If I look at my story, I told you, I purposely stopped, right? And we all laughed that they lived happily ever after. But guess what? There's more to my story if I was to read on a little bit further. I would have been able to tell you about how God gave us children. That's me on the left with, my, with our first son, Brandon. And that my, I, I was able to baptize my son right outside these doors in a cattle trough, a rubber-made cattle trough. I was able to baptize little Brandon right there. And then I would be able to tell you about this trip. We, we went on to Minnesota last week, and we caught a bunch of fish, and we had a lot of fun because the Lord was with us. And he gives good things. And he renews our youth like the eagle, it says in Psalm 103. And that's my story, and, and it's not over yet. But you got to keep reading, right? You don't, you don't just stop. And now consider the second thing that we can easily fall asleep, right? That's the second point I said, why sometimes we stop and not read the end. We know this is the case we can fall asleep because the Lord himself warned us. Again, every synoptic gospel, he gave these warnings. Pay attention, have the ears to hear. What is he going to say in Mark 13, 35? Therefore, be on the alert. For you do not know when the master of the house is coming, speaking of himself, whether in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. It's repeated, the same concept in Matthew 24, 42. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. My friends, we need to have a posture to be alert. He tells us, if, we're, if we claim to be his disciples, we better listen to what he says. Be alert. Paul, writing to the Thessalonians in, Thess- in 1 Thessalonians 5, picks up the same theme. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying, peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, 
and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day should overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. Peter has similar remarks in his letters and epistles. So clearly, we are warned to stay ready, to stay alert, to not fall asleep. The implication, as I mentioned earlier, is you can fall asleep. And not only can you fall asleep, you can allow things to distract you. I'll give you an example of, of how I've seen little things. I, I get distracted by different things, but this is sort of a funny one. It's not real funny if you were driving down the road with me, but I'm driving down 65 southbound, traveling 65, 7, you know, I don't know, 65, probably 4 or 5 over the limit, whatever. Don't, don't give me a ticket here. <laughs> I happen to glance over and see a guy driving down the road, but instead of having his eyes on what lies ahead, he has his cell phone, and it's not just up on, a, on one of the little iPhone holders. He didn't, he didn't have one of those, so what he did is he just laid it onto his dashboard, covering up the gauges, and I could look. It was in the evening, so I looked over, and I saw he's watching a movie or, or a, a TV show while he's driving down the road. Now, to me, that is a very scary and dangerous situation, traveling at a high rate of speed, not looking at what's ahead of the car, not even looking at your gauges to know how fast you're going. I mean, he could have, there could have been a person right there. He would have never known. He would have never known. He just trusted. He just trusted. It's clear and safe for travel. It's clear and it's safe for travel. And my friends, there are people out there today that are walking right now thinking it's clear and safe to travel. No end will come. Where's the sign of his coming? Well, they forgot that God will act one day in judgment and you better be ready. If we were to flip to Revelation, we would see Jesus walking amongst the seven lampstands, which represent the church. He then sends messages to each of the seven churches. And I believe the fact that there are seven indicates completeness. And so when he writes to the seven churches and sends the seven letters, it represents the whole. And in them we can see areas within the church that are greatly valued by the Lord, things he commends them for. And then there are things that he condemns them, condemns them for and says, look, you've got a problem here. You need to correct this, this issue. Uh, and one of those issues goes right hand in hand with what we're talking about. As he wrote in Revelation 3, 1, as he talks to the church in Sardis, he says, I know your deeds, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. Do you get the picture here? There's a condition that can impact the church, and it had with this church, Sardis, wherein they were viewed as being alive and strong and well. But in reality, he says, you're dead, and you're asleep at the wheel. 
And if you don't wake up, there's a very unfortunate thing that's going to happen. I'm going to come. I will return. And for you, I will be like a thief because you won't be ready. Remember in Thessalonians, he said, you shouldn't let it take you like a thief. He shouldn't take you like a thief because you should be ready. But here to the letter in the church in Sardis, if you don't wake up, I will come to you like a thief and you will not know. Um, so my prayer for CCC is that we don't fall victim to these two fairly pervasive things. Number one, that we don't fall asleep. It's obviously easy to do. The Lord warned about it. We don't become distracted with other things. That we don't take on the postmodern thinking. That we don't say there's no meta narrative. We do say there's a big story. There is one overarching story. That we don't fall victim to the things that say, you know, there's just too many opinions about eschatology, too many opinions about prophecy. I'm going to stop studying it. Well, if you stop studying it, let me give you a little tidbit of information. One third of the Bible is prophecy. About half of that has been, most think, has been fulfilled. Quite a bit of it has not been, about half this hasn't been fulfilled according to many eschatological scholars. So when you say, I'm going to ignore it, you're ignoring one-sixth. You're deciding, I'm going to table that. I don't care about that, and that's a dangerous position. I don't want us to fall into that trap. So I want us to turn our gaze to the end of this grand story and prepare our hearts and minds to be sharpened so that we're ready, that we're ready for his return. And when doing this, I want us to open up to a few passages as we close out and look to what the Lord said to his church regarding his return. We don't have time to go into all of it. We'll look into it more next week as well. But for the church, we have an incredible future, and we need to know what it says. The books of First and Second Thessalonians are perhaps some of the greatest to talk about this subject because every chapter in First Thessalonians, his second coming is mentioned. And in, the, in 2 Thessalonians, all but the last chapter mentions his coming. So we would do well to open it. And we would find in 1 Thessalonians 4.15, he says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then those who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Do you see a sequence here? First, he descends with the shout of the archangel and the trumpet. Second, the dead in Christ will rise from the dead. Third, those that are alive on the earth will be caught up to them in the air. The word caught up is a Greek word, harpazo, to seize by force, to snatch up suddenly and decisively like someone seizing bounty or spoil or prize. This is a major event. This is what we call, many New Testament scholars would, would call the rapture event of God's church. The question is, when will this Harpazo event happen? That's the big question that people spend many hours trying to figure out. I'm not going to claim to have figured that out, but I will give you 
another passage in Thessalonians that I think gives us some peace. And, and secondly, I will say, before we go to those other passages, regardless of when, it will happen. And therefore, be ready that this, this event will happen. But let's run a little bit further with the when will this happen question. If we were to flip a few pages further in our Bibles, you would come to 2 Thessalonians, where it appears someone has stirred up the Thessalonians in this case, making it sound as if Christ has already returned and they missed him. And so he writes to them and says, I gotta, I gotta help you in this. 2 Thessalonians 2.1, now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So Paul gives them two clear indicators like I said, calm down. You haven't missed them. Know for certain that there's two things that will precede his coming. The apostasy and the man of lawlessness will be revealed. Now, if, if, if I were you, and I hope that I'm trying to convey a message of trying to pay attention to this stuff, I would want to know, what is this, the apostasy that Paul's talking about? I would want to know, who is this man of lawlessness? Because he told the New Testament church, be certain that those two things will happen before he comes. That's pretty cool news because I can be watchful for some things. Now, let's look quickly. Next week, we'll look at the man of lawlessness. For now, as we wrap up, let's consider what he talks about with the apostasy. The Greek word is uh, apostasia, which means a falling away, a defection from, or or, or a... uh, to turn away from. Um, If we look at this, we also note there's a definite article. He said the apostasy, not just an apostasy, but the apostasy. That means there's something big that we should be looking for here, and it's, it's critical. Now, I can't tell you exactly what this falling away is. I can't tell you exactly what this defection away from, what it is. I can give you what I sort of think the scripture paints a picture of, and I'll just have to leave it at that. And again, we've got to now switch to another area of scripture. The way, I love the way the Lord does this. You've got to be willing to read it all to then see how he, how he gives us his messages and how he gives us lessons. Here in 1 Timothy, letters written to the pastors and messengers to the churches, he says this, the spirit explicitly says... I'll repeat that. The Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away, New American adds, i.e. apostatize from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. You see, a falling away from the faith the body of truth, sound doctrine. And we can even see some of the people at work or the powers at work, spirits and demons are at work in this, some of this work here. Then in 2 Timothy, in, verse, in chapter 3, 
he starts out and he says, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. And he begins talking about those difficult times. And then he gets to a section where he says, for the time will come in 4.3, where they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And they will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths. This is a warning to the pastors of of churches that this, God says, will happen. There will be a falling away. People will seek to hear only what they want to hear. They will seek teachers that will only teach what they want to have taught to them. They won't want to hear. The world around us doesn't want to hear the meta-narrative of God's. They don't want to hear the one-way truth and life message. They would rather hear, we can all do whatever we want. You can have your God. I can have my God. It's all okay. That is a major error. And when we gather teachers around that that sound good, but they mislead. Doctrines of demons. So I believe there will be a time that's coming where there's a lack of sound doctrine, of falling away from the, of, from the faith and the body of truth that we should hold firmly to. Uh, and this very well may be what Paul's referring to when he talks about the apostasy will happen. Sounds like a pretty good connection with those passages. I can't say for certain, but that's where I sort of head with it. Um, now, next week, we'll look at the man of lawlessness and what, who is this guy? What does he have to do with the, the end times and what the return of the Lord? Uh, but now, I just in closing, I, I just want to make a couple closing comments. When I look out our doors, I actually really long for his return. I see death in the animals. I see a nation in turmoil. I see a world reeling from pandemic. I see cultures infiltrated with wickedness and violence and hatred. I see worldviews that are trying to be hoisted on people that on the outside seem great. Oh, do they, do they seem good? But down deep, you can see a fruit of hatred that begins to work its, its, its ways into the result. And it causes problems and rebellion. I see rulers and leaders who don't honor the king, the Lord. Rather, they're power hungry, more concerned about securing their next election than doing what is right. I ultimately see a house in our country that is divided and will struggle to stand. And at the end of the day, when I boil all that together, I see the serpent's work of deception. It's still running its course. As John, 1 John 5 says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. But there's one who overcame. I'm ready for that one to deal with him finally, just like he promised back in the garden. He will crush you on the head. You may strike his heel, but he's going to crush you on the head. And when I open my Bible and I read Revelation 5, I see this incredible view of God sitting on his throne with the, with the angels around and the, 
the rainbow and the sea of glass, and I see the 24 elders, and I see the four living creatures, as Gary pointed out, crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is is to come. And then I get to this section. And I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back. Get that? It's a complete book. It's full. It's got a lot in it. Sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? Make inquiry, search. And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or even to look into it. And I began to weep greatly, John says, because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And if you stopped the story there, you'd say, wow, that's a sad situation. And why, why even have this? Why not just jump down to verse six here and go on? Why did the Lord have a strong angel cry that out? Why did he say, search the world over, go under the earth, over the earth, and on the earth, and search? Because you won't find anyone of man that's able to open this scroll. The title deed to the earth, the judgment that he'll pour out on the serpent and on mankind at the end. We'll take it and execute it. No one righteous to do that. Why did John weep so badly? Because if no one was found, what does that mean? Man stays forever in this state. There will be no final peace and righteousness. Evil will never be punished. The cycle of death on the earth will go on and on and on. And the evil one will maintain his position of the death over the nations. And the veil will stay over it. Man has made his attempts to try to solve this problem. Mind you. Egypt wanted a prosperous, righteous world. Where is it? Greece wanted a peaceful world, and they tried. Where is it? Rome, they claimed, specialized in justice. Where's the justice? The United Nations wants to bring the world together in great peace and harmony. Where is it? Has it done a good job? The World Health Organization wants to bring great health and rid the world of disease. How are they doing? But the story doesn't end with this verse. And that's the good news. Verse 5, one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. 
Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads upon myriads and thousands upon thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard them say, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures knelt down, kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. I'm ready for that seal to be opened. I'm ready for the Lion of Judah to come and crush the head of the serpent. I'm ready for the final chapters. And I want us to be ready. I want us to be like Peter says, hastening the day of the Lord, looking forward to it. Next week, we'll pick up and say, what are the signs of his coming? And with even more detail, what does he tell us will happen in these last days? What is the end chapter? What is the final, ultimate consummation and the end of the age, the new heavens and the new earth? The Bible has a lot to say. We would do well to study it and know it. So I'm going to close this in prayer. Lord, I thank you that you've given us your word. I'm thankful that you haven't left us out on a limb in this dark world. I'm thankful that it didn't end with Revelation 5-4, where there was crying and weeping up by John as he laid there realizing the weight and the magnitude that if there's no one found worthy then we're in a really dark situation but Lord I'm so thankful there was one that was found worthy the lion of Judah the descendant of David the one that came from the seed of the woman that you prophesied and told us about eons past the one that the angelic watchers watched and welcomed, and the ones that, the one that they all bowed down and yelled out, worthy is this one to receive power and glory and honor and dominion forever and ever. Lord, you are the one that deserves all glory and honor. Help us to be people that don't fall victim to the fear of studying prophecy and just bowing the knee to say, well, it's just, it's too complicated. I can't do it. I can't, I just give up. Lord, help us to have ears to hear, minds that are diligent to study. Make it the apple of our eye, your word, that we would want to study it, to know it, that it may prepare us for the future. May we not succumb to the world and the culture around us. And may we be awake and ready. May we keep our eyes fixed on you, watchful and waiting for these things to unfold. And may we comfort one another with these words, that even when things may appear to be falling completely apart, we can look at it and say, it very well could be that it's falling completely together because you are still sovereign and on your throne. And you will work this out in the end according to your plan. And you will rule and we will follow you. And and it'll be an awesome and great day when the lion lays down next to the lamb and the youth plays by the den of a cobra. 
Lord, I see the animals and they flee from us because of what happened all the way back after the flood. You put the fear of man into the animals. But a day will come when you'll allow us to sit down next to a lion, play next to the den of a cobra. It'll be an awesome day. And you will be our God. You will be our king. And we will be radiant and reflect that great awesome glory that stems from your throne. We won't need the sun or the moon any longer. And we look forward to studying that more next week, Father. Go before us now. In Jesus' great name we pray. Amen.